Hello everyone, Michael here, and before we get to today's episode of the Changing Faith Podcast, I wanted to let you know that this is the last episode of Season 2. It has been such a fun season. We've had incredible guests. I've learned so much from them, and I've enjoyed putting these podcasts together, and I hope that you've enjoyed listening. But like all good things, Season 2 is now coming to an end. Every summer, I take some time off. I go on vacation with my family, and I also spend the majority of the next couple of months uh, studying and researching and preparing for the next season of teaching at Denver Community Church. And so I'm going to be doing that in the months of July and August. I'm also going to be taking a trip to the Dominican Republic and to Haiti with the group Plant with Purpose. You may remember a few episodes ago, we had Dr. Matthew Sleeth on as one of our guests, and Dr. Sleeth has done a lot of work and and supports that group as well. And so I'm thrilled to be able to go down and see the important work they're doing uh, with regard to agriculture and reforestation efforts in Haiti. So what that means is season three of the Changing Faith podcast will return in early September. So be on the lookout. There'll be an email that comes out telling you when it's going to return. And I cannot wait for the next season. But until then, enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. On the very first episode of this podcast, we talked about what the Changing Faith Podcast is all about. We spoke about a movement, a journey that so many of us are on, one that has called us away from our spiritual homes to new places, one that invites new questions and has opened us up to new ideas. And in all of this, we continually talk about what does it look like for us to take our next step? And so today I'm thrilled to introduce you to someone who continues to take steps. Her name is Marla Taviano. Her biggest passions are loving the poor, seeking justice, and building libraries. Marla is an author. She's written more than 10 books, and she and her husband and their children now live in Cambodia. And I've witnessed her journey from a distance, and I'm not going to tell you any more than that because I want her to share her story with all of you. And so with that said, Marla, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank you so much, Michael. This is awesome. Well, first off, what should our listeners uh, know about you as we get started? Um, in a nutshell, I live here in Cambodia, Siem Reap. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Angkor Wat. It's the, one of the biggest temple complexes in the world. Mm-hmm. It's just a few kilometers down the road from us. I live here with my husband, Gabe. Uh, we met at a church camp as counselors in 1996. The girl campers called him Gabe the babe. So sometimes I still call him that. (laughs) We've been married 21 years and we have three daughters. Olivia is 18. Ava will be 17 in two days. And Nina is 13. And we lived in Ohio for most of our lives. We both grew up in Ohio and lived there after we were married. We moved 10 different times, but it was mostly just different places in Ohio and one brief stint in Indiana. And then in in January 2015, we um, sold everything we owned. Well, before that, we sold everything we owned and packed up and put everything in uh, two suitcases apiece and moved to Cambodia. So four and almost a half, yeah, four and a half years later, we're still here. Wow. And you're there now, it's important to point out. 
And you told me that you have a house full of people and would you say wild animals outside? <laughs> no, it's it's 10:45 p.m. here and it's 9:45 for you. When you ask me yep. about the difference, I the whole daylight savings time screws me up because we don't oh, change yes. and you guys do. Um, no, we have the one daughter is in bed and then my husband, my other two daughters and a 2-year-old are in the bedroom. Um, but I don't know, like right now there's a big airplane going overhead. There's some water filter stuff going outside. There's people screaming and I have no way of, <laughs> there are screens at the top. I have no way of keeping the sound out and I don't have any oh, closets. So, um, see, I'm by and myself I'm in, in this I'm room. I'm in but... a closet. <laughs> Literally, I'm in a closet. My, my son created this recording studio because uh, he loves playing music and recording it. So oh, that's, that's great. That's where I am because I have kids upstairs. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, let, let's uh, let's get into a little bit more. You um, you and I knew each other way back in college. And like I said, I've observed your journey mostly through social media. Um, and, and so I'd love to know first, how would you describe the home and the church and the school world that you grew up in? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Um, I am the oldest of four children, and I was the typical oldest child, uh, leader, bossy, type A. My dad um, <laughs> nicknamed me Mouth, so that was instead of Marla, he called me Mouth. Um, we were part of a conservative, Jesus-loving family. Um, we went to church every Sunday, Sunday school, church, Sunday night, Wednesday night youth group, prayer meeting, all of that. My dad drove a school bus, not for school children, but he drove a school bus on Sunday mornings to pick kids up whose families weren't going to church. So this is the first mm. church we were at. We moved then when I was in sixth grade, but up until sixth grade, and I did not appreciate this till much later, but my dad was a bus driver. He would go around and literally pick up 50 or 60 kids every Sunday oh and from the neighborhood and bring them. So this is in the... 80s, um, bring them to church. And then he would teach children's church. Um, then we moved um, to an even smaller town when I was in sixth grade. And the reason was, so I was homeschooled. No, I went to a Christian school, preschool, kindergarten, first grade. When I was in first grade, I learned to read when I was four. So the teacher asked my mom if, if she could bump me up to second grade. And I was terrified because all the second graders knew how to write in cursive and I didn't, so I didn't want to do it. Um, but I was bored to death because I was reading chapter books and they're learning their letters. So my mom um, decided to homeschool me, but apparently that was not a thing back in 1981, 82. Um, so she was kind of doing that on her own, but she did that for, let's see, second, third and fourth grade. And then fifth grade, I was plopped into our neighborhood public school and that, that was a new thing for me. That was a big adjustment. And then for the next year, I would have been going to this huge junior high. So maybe 700 kids in my class or something. And for whatever reason, my parents weren't quite ready to put me in that situation. And we ended up moving back to where my parents grew up, a very small, very conservative town out in the country. My graduating class was 71 people. I was co-valedictorian and got to give a speech. Um, I usually don't tell people 71 because it kind of makes it, <laughs> first of all, I was tied for valedictorian and then there were only 71 of us. No, but we, um, so that was another public school, but in this little town, there were a lot of people who were Christians. Um, so again, it wasn't 
what I would call a typical public school experience. So then um, where to go to college? I knew where I was not going to go, and that was where my dad went. And where the other place I was not going to go is where my mom went. Um, so those two Christian schools, one in Indiana and one in Ohio, were off um, the table. Well, then I started applying for scholarships because my family did not have a lot of money. And um, ended up that the school my dad went to in Ohio offered me a nursing scholarship. Well, I didn't know that I wanted to be a nurse, but I liked the idea of this nursing scholarship. And so I decided I would go there anyway. So I did. I went to my dad's, um, well, I don't know if it's his alma mater because he ended up transferring to my mom's university in Indiana. Um, But so I went on this nursing scholarship two quarters in I realized there was going to be blood and things like that. And I, I thought, I, this, is, this is not for me. Um, I met with my advisor, changed my major to elementary education because it seemed like the easiest major. All my friends um, who were elementary education majors seemed to be having a much easier time of it than my nursing major friends. And so um, I ended up then switching to another advisor because one of my one of my professors hired me to edit some curriculum for him. Another Bible professor hired me to grade papers and to write some things. This should have been my clue that um, nursing was not for me. Teaching was not for me. Writing maybe <laughs> <laughs> was my thing. Did not get the memo though. And because, like I mentioned, we didn't have a lot of money, I did whatever I could to try to save money. One of those things, I don't know if you know about CLEP tests. I don't even know if they still have them. But Oh, yes. I clepped out of like 55 credit hours. Way to go. So did I. I don't know, oh. how, I don't know how many it was, but it was enough that I could do one little summer school block and with all the CLEP tests and all whatever, and I graduated in three years instead of four. So oh, that's w- impressive. Y- you and I went to college together for a while, but when did you, did you transfer from somewhere else to? I transferred just, in and okay. like your dad, technically it's not my alma mater okay. because I got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so you and I, I think are the same age, but I graduated in 97 then because I finished early. So yes. Um, I sort of finished in 97, but okay. uh, then I graduated in 98. I finished there in 97. Okay. But thanks to the CLEP tests, I was able to um, take finish up at uh, oh some state college in Springfield, Ohio. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, um, Clark State? Yes, Clark State. <laughs> I'm a Clark State alumni. That is um, incredible. Wow. Yes, I and, took a geography and, class there. <laughs> oh, nice. And Beth was a nursing major. And I was a communications major, which I think might even be easier than elementary ed. Oh, and I remember I would call her on like a Tuesday night to go out on a date and she would say, I have a test on Friday. And I'm like, but it's, it's Tuesday. (laughs) So, (laughs) so yeah, that's that's how I met Beth is that we were nursing majors together for two quarters and then I left and she stuck around. Um, She did. But yeah, so let's see, where are we? So graduated 1997. Um, in the meantime, in 1996, I went to um, a church camp as a counselor. I had been to this camp as a high schooler, as a camper, uh, and I met this guy named Gabe, and I came back. He, We met on the basketball court. He blocked my shot eight times, which I thought was 
not cool. I mean, let me do something. I know you're big and tall and a guy, whatever. Let the girl score. He didn't. And actually, that was kind of attractive, I guess, to me. So I come back. I tell my cabin mate, I just met this really cute guy. Um, so long story short with that, by the end of that summer, we were dating. There was a no dating policy, but we were um, essentially dating. So because I had um, was going to finish up that next year at my school, um, my advisor, who'd hired me to do writing, tried to get me to teach for a year in China after I graduated. This was before mm. I met Gabe. So we set this plan in motion that I would try to do my overseas, um, my student teaching overseas first for three months to see if I liked it. And if I did like it, then I would go back to China the following year. Well, I ended up meeting Gabe <laughs> and knew I did not want to go to China anymore for a year, but I'd already signed up for this student teaching conference, ended up going. And again, long story short, there was one opening for me and one for my best friend. And we both went to Okinawa, Japan for three months in 1997 to oh, wow. do our student teaching. Uh, so that was my first experience overseas. And it was, um, it was pretty incredible, except that I missed Gabe a lot because we had just been dating for a while and I didn't want to leave him. Um, after I got back from that, so June of 97, was supposed to graduate, but I skipped my college graduation and um, <laughs> got my wisdom teeth out instead and went to my brother's track meet. I remember that. Um, worked at a grocery store for a while with my college degree. Was making about $5 an hour, $4.50 an hour, I don't know. Ended up doing some substitute teaching. Got married in January of 1998 and moved to Indiana where Gabe was still in school for another year and a half. So okay. I subbed there for a while, then became a full-time teacher. My first full-time teaching job was in Indiana that next year. And he got a job in Cleveland, Ohio after graduation. We moved there. And then the rest of the time, we just hopped around Ohio forever until we moved to Cambodia. Um, so I taught school for a while and then started having kids, stayed home with them. By that time, I had decided that I loved writing. I got a, um, a job with an educational publisher that I could do from home and made more oh, money nice. from that than I ever made from teaching. So I was writing curriculum for teachers and I got to stay home with the girls. So that was great. Um, and then through some kind of fluke, I ended up getting a book published with Harvest House <laughs> Publishers out in Oregon. Um, I, people ask me how this happened. I won't even go into it now because it doesn't happen like this anymore. And so my sob story with being a published author is that I had a book published in 2006, 2007, 2008, and 2009. Oh my goodness. But, um... This was, I was not on the internet at all until months after my first book came out. So 2006, I don't know who, I don't know if I was behind the times or if that's just when all this started. I don't really know. But I, I was on Zanga. Do you know Zanga? The, the no, blog? Okay. never heard of that. <laughs> I started blogging though in 2006 on Blogspot. Okay. It's very that similar was... to Blogspot. Yes. Okay. So I was blogging on Zanga. Well, I knew nothing about book publishing. I didn't have an agent. Um, I was just 
kind of on my own. So my first book was called From Blushing Bride to Wedded Wife, which I hesitate to say because I don't want anyone to go buy it. If you buy it, you'd have to buy it used. It's not in print anymore. And then then I wrote a book about sex. And then I wrote a book about mm, the first year of motherhood and then a book about pregnancy. So this is kind of my groove. Um, Conservative Christian, writing about marriage and family and babies and all of that. Let's get time time frame down. So this is 2006, 7, 8, 9. 6, 7, 8, 9. And my mm-hmm. youngest daughter was born in 2006. So she was born two months before, yeah, two months before my first book came out. Okay. So you're still in this, in this time, because you've used this term conservative several times. You would still oh. put yourself in that place, growing up conservative, going to a conservative university. Yes. I would say that... Um, Super conservative. I guess I should clarify that my family, I didn't know anything but what I knew. So I, I didn't, all I thought was that we were the good guys and had everything right. And then there were the rest of the people were out there being liberal or whatever. But now hearing stories when people talk about their fundamentalist upbringing or their conservative upbringing, mine was not as conservative as all of that. I would say. So, for example, um, I was talking to my mom recently who um, has stuck with me through this faith shift of mine, even though hers is not quite on the same level as mine. But we were talking about submission, um, wives submitting to husbands and talking about if she believed that or not, if I believed it or not. And then I asked her, practically speaking, would you say that you submit to dad? And she just kind of smiled (laughs) because she knew that in their marriage, that's not how it was. Like my dad was not the leader of our family in in any kind of overpowering way. He was gentle and kind. He's the biggest servant that I've ever met, always doing everything for everyone. Which I'll point out, that's according to Ephesians 5. That's actually what husbands should be doing because Ephesians 5, where that submission passage is taken from, everyone is told to submit. Right. So for those of you listening, (laughs) next time you're with a couple, you should ask the husband if he's submitting to his wife because Mm. it's biblical. (laughs) Good. Yeah, for sure. So looking back now, that's the kind of dad I had. And when Mm. when I said something about being like a type A bossy personality, my dad calling me mouth, I was a very strong child, strong girl, strong-willed, but my parents didn't discourage that in any way. There oh, wasn't wow, any sense of girls are inferior or girls can't do anything. I played every sport that my brother played and even more than he did. And, um, it was just always kind of a given that I could do anything that I wanted. So, hmm. so conservative, I would say, as far as taking the Bible pretty literally and um, believing things that maybe we, we went to a non-denominational church, but um, okay. that's basically Baptist. I read a funny something about that just the other day that, <laughs> that it's really, it's just undercover Baptist. Um, and I'm not sure if it, <laughs> if it was or not, but so they just, everybody loved my parents. All of my friends whose parents were divorced or not getting along or their family situations were rough just flocked to my parents as Hmm. just people who were loving and kind. And my dad embarrassed the crap out of me, but 
everybody else <laughs> thought he was funny and he is funny and he can still embarrass me. <laughs> but yeah. so, so yeah, that's, but up, up until, so we're getting to the point of my faith shift. So as yeah. I am writing about things, it's all in that same genre of, um, what I would call quote biblical marriage, which I now don't call it that, but just the ideas that a complementarianism or wives submitting. Um, so it was a little bit of a twist because knowing that I was this strong woman, my husband knew that and I didn't, I, I wasn't the most submissive wife as far as what I think <laughs> complementarians would want women to be. Um, but it was around 2008 or nine that we um, we were at this church and they put this thing up on the on the screen about a mission trip to Cambodia. And I had honestly, I'd heard of Cambodia, had no idea where it was. Um, I might have thought it was on the continent of Africa. It is not. It is in Asia. <laughs> it borders <laughs> Thailand and Vietnam, which most people have heard of. Um, we had people, a lot of people, even when we moved here, have fun in Africa. And we're like, okay, if we ever go there, we'll, <laughs> we'll have fun. Um, so this mission trip comes up. Well, I had always had this huge love of missions, love the missions conferences at our church. When I was growing up, my aunt and uncle were missionaries in Indonesia. I had gone to Japan. Um, so I told Gabe, I really want to go. And he said to me, Marla, these people are spending $2,500 and they are a bunch of white people pushing brown kids in swings and then coming home. <laughs> and he thought that was the dumbest thing he'd ever heard. And so what I did as a good submissive Christian wife, instead of nagging him, is I just prayed that God would change his mind, which is what I did mm. a lot of. And now looking back, I don't know how that, how that all worked out or what the deal was there. But he came to me one day out of the blue and said, if you still want to go on this mission trip, um, I will go. So this nice. was in, this was in 2010, July, 2010. Before that, I had been reading a lot of things about the poor and, mm. um, I'm not sure exactly when that started, but I started reading in the Bible. I started reading books. I read books that had Bible verses in them, verses that I had never heard of. I have read the Bible from front to back, probably 20 times. I read it for the first time all the way through when I was 10, and I thought that I knew everything that was in it. Um, mm -hmm. For starters, you cannot know everything that's in it or remember everything that's in it, but also no. when you're reading it, um, even through the lens of a 10-year-old, um, you filter things, ignore things. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so there's a lot I didn't see, and I... I I have to look back. I'm in the process of trying to write out this whole faith journey. I've been putting it off oh, nice. because it's so overwhelming to me <laughs> to figure yeah. out how I got here. Um, but I and do. one of the things I'll say, <laughs> I think that's important, is for what you're attempting to do in writing that out is incredibly helpful because there's so many people who've undergone, you use the term a faith shift or, or if they want to call it a growth or um, evolution in their journey who don't, are not able to go back and say, Oh, I was here like you, where right. you were in college and then post-college and these things began to unfold. And 
too often I hear people say things like, well, you need to get to where I am, but that's mm. denying somebody else the journey that you've been able to undergo, I've been able to undergo. Um, and so I love that you're working on that. And I love too that the journey kind of began by you reading the Bible. Um, yeah. I, a few episodes ago, I talked about when I started reading the prophets. Uh, actually, when I was in college is when I started reading the prophets and it started blowing up all of my narratives Mm. Um, and really created a lot of substantive questions that I had never thought to ask and questions that there were no good answers for. Yes, exactly. So I think what kind of just started hitting me was in the past, I had thought that the good Christians were concerned about people's salvation and the liberal people wanted to feed them and <laughs> clothe them and, <laughs> and do all these things that just did not matter in like the eternal scheme of things. And so that was a slow, I think slow at the beginning. And then it just kind of escalated where I, mm. I was seeing it everywhere and realizing that, well, especially after you go to Cambodia and you see the real people that this is affecting and you see what it would be like to leave someone in their pain and suffering and leave them with a Bible and say, um, gee, I hope that this all works out for you. If it doesn't, as long as you say these words, you're going to go to heaven. So great. Yeah. When and you die, things will be great. But living in the meantime is going to suck. Yeah, right? it's going to be hard. <laughs> I'm sorry that you were born here and I was born in America, but what can I do about that? There's nothing I can do. Um, so that just really hit me. So hmm. oh, lost my earplug. We... Um, Went to so went to Cambodia in 2010 for 10 days, and while we were there, I just had this just a lot of feelings about this is gonna this has changed my life. Um, when we got back, our daughters who were four, seven, and eight at the time maybe uh, made us promise that we'd never go back without them. They wanted to go. So oh, wow. we started saving money to go as a family. So this was July, 2010. We got back um, and we made plans to go. We finally had enough money saved up for tickets um, for December of 2011. So it's nearing that time. And uh, in October, end of October, 2011, so five, six weeks before we were supposed to go, um, we were at a harvest festival at our church, you know, like not trick or treat, but a, <laughs> a harvest festival. Oh, is that what it and is? It, no. <laughs> yeah. It's for people who think that Halloween is evil. No, our church was really awesome. At this point, oh, I forgot this part of the story. <laughs> so at this point, we had helped our friend Rich plant a multi-ethnic church in Columbus. Mm. So we moved from our church in the suburbs. Um Rich is a black man, and he is a dynamic preacher, friend of Gabe's for a long time. And when he first approached Gabe about this, I was like, whoa, no, no, thank you. <laughs> and in this case, it was me that God changed her mind, not his mind. Um, so we were helping do that. So that was at this church, and this church, it was it was great. So this Harvest Festival, um, yeah, it was a good thing. The fire trucks were there, all the stuff. Uh, my husband's playing basketball. He starts to get um, not feeling so well. He's cold and clammy. 
comes outside, tells me he doesn't feel well. I pretty much tell him to suck it up, sit in the van. (laughs) You're fine. You're just out of shape. And um, a friend comes over, our friend Chad, and he's like, is Gabe all right? And I said, he's fine. Well, Chad, bless him, uh, called 911. And the fire truck that had just been there for the kids to climb around in came back as did an ambulance. They put him in the ambulance, would not let me in for whatever reason, got back out. Um, the guys came back out and said, we'll we'll take him. You can follow behind. So our friend Harlan, uh, ended up taking me to the hospital, get there. I go up to the desk. Where's my husband? I, she tells me room 52, I think, I hear people yell in room 52 stat. I don't know much about hospitals because I dropped out of the nursing program. (laughs) But I know that stat is not a good calm thing. Stat means someone is in trouble. And so I run down there. They are cutting off his clothes. And the doctor tells me that he thinks it's a heart attack and they're rushing him up to do whatever they do when people have heart attacks. So my phone had died and Harlan found a way to get me a charger. I'm trying to call my parents, um, Gabe's parents without knowing their phone numbers. (laughs) And I, um, okay. So he was fine. He was fine, but he suffered a massive heart attack. His left, left anterior descending artery, which, um, is called the widow maker was 100% blocked and 10 more minutes or less than 10 more minutes, um, he would have died. So thanks to me and my suck it up and thanks to Chad, and I'm going to go ahead and call 911. <laughs> Chad saved Gabe's life, not me. Um, and so honestly, once I knew that he was okay and I went in and I saw him and I held his hand and he's fine. And the doctor says he's great. He's out of danger. Then I started crying. And I was actually crying because I knew we couldn't go to Cambodia, that we had saved up for a year and a half. The girls are so excited. He almost died of a heart attack. There's no Western healthcare in Cambodia. Nobody's going to let him get on a plane six weeks from now and go there for five weeks. Um, But the doctor did. Mm. The doctor gave him his full blessing. He said, you are fine. You're not going to have another heart attack. You can go. So five weeks after that, we were on a plane to Cambodia, um, the two of us and our three girls, and we stayed for five weeks. And I was hoping while we were there that the whole family would decide that we should move there. But Mm. maybe three and a half weeks in, I had changed my mind and decided, no, I think that I remember that I like America better and I would like to go back there. Well, right before we came back to the States, um, Gabe wakes up, I think it was New Year's Eve 2012, or New Year's Day 2012, and he says, Marla, God just gave me a vision. And this has never happened. God has never given him a vision that I know of. And he said, he showed me what I will be doing when we move to Cambodia, that I will be training young people to do web design and photography as a path out of poverty. And I'm thinking, oh, good Lord, because that was my prayer 
I didn't know that part of it, but now I had already changed my mind <laughs> and I was planning on pulling this submissive wife card. Well, my husband doesn't want to move to Cambodia, so I guess I won't move to Cambodia. Well, now husband says God talked to him and I believed him. So we come back January 11th, 2012, and our plan is sell our house sell everything we own, pay off the last of our debt, and move to Cambodia. Two weeks later, we are in the emergency room again because Gabe thinks he's having another heart attack. A couple weeks after that, we're in the emergency room again, same thing. And this time the doctor says, has anyone talked to you about panic attacks? And we said no. And the doctor said, you are suffering from anxiety. This is a panic attack. It mimics a heart attack. Oh, wow. And since you nearly died of a heart attack, that would explain why you think you're having another one and why you know that you might have only 10 minutes left to live. So um, the next three years, instead of moving to Cambodia, we didn't sell our house. We lost our house. We gave lost his job. We lost everything. And we, instead of saving up to move to Cambodia, we got into more and more debt. Um, we didn't have health insurance. So every emergency room trip that we had to take because Gabe thought he was dying um, was a couple thousand dollars that we didn't have. Oh, wow. So this just kind of spiraled out of control. The good news was this church that we had helped plant, the people just rallied around us and loved us and took care of us. And the girls and I did all kinds of odd jobs. We would babysit, clean people's houses, do whatever. People brought us groceries. It was the lowest point um, of our lives. I don't really have any redeeming stories to tell out of it besides the ways that people took care of us. Um, I didn't want to be married to Gabe anymore with all of this. It just felt too hard. Um, I knew I couldn't believe him how he was. I was writing and speaking at the time, um, but Gabe wouldn't leave the house. He was scared to leave the house. I couldn't leave the girls with him, so his mom would have to come and stay with him while I went off to go speak to groups of women and encourage them in their marriage <laughs> and fun <laughs> things like that. But no, that was already after I had had a lot of ideas shift in my mind. And so I started speaking from my gut, from my heart, telling my real time story, like my right now story is what our, what Pastor Rich would call it. And I would cry in front of groups. I would tell them, this is where I want to be. This is where I am. This is what's going on. I don't understand. And it changed everything because my new ministry, my new speaking ministry was pretty much get up in front of people, fall apart and be a little bit funny while I do it. And <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was unreal. Like I had women come up to me with tears and say things like, I would go through hell to have a calling on my life like you have on your life. And oh, wow. I kind of wanted to say, well, I am going through hell and I will trade you <laughs> yeah. my hell, my calling for whatever you've got going on. That can't be as bad as all that. Um, but looking back, I guess the redemptive part that I would say is looking back, I realize every hard thing that ever happened has become a part of my story and has given me empathy. Gabe's heart attack, his anxiety, the suicidal thoughts gave him it took him from a black and white thinking person to all kinds of nuance, all kinds of empathy, 
understanding why someone would become a drug addict or a drunk, why someone would want to die by suicide. Um, so it, yeah. it changed us and it made us um, different, better. So in this whole thing that's happening, so this is 2012, 2013, um, we are going to a multi-ethnic church. I am making black friends for the first time in my life. I had had a few black friends, but not really. And my white town had, um, it was basically completely white. And started opening my eyes to all kinds of things. But the really, really big catalyst was Trayvon Martin's death in 2012. Wow. And my friend Yolanda, who I had just met recently, she had just been over to my house for lunch. She had two adorable little boys and her four-year-old boy, um, she wrote a poem about how when he puts his hoodie on, he could have been Trayvon Martin. It was the most heartbreaking, beautiful thing I've ever read. I asked her if I could share it. At that time, I was blogging a lot, so I shared it on my blog. Um, all these people were just blown away by this. And that is when, because what, what started this is one of my other friends had said, I'm really disappointed in all my white friends that nobody's talking about Trayvon. And I'm like, Trayvon who? And so then I Google, uh -huh. and that was the start of me realizing that with this white privilege thing I have, that means I don't have to know things. I don't have to know what's going on in the world unless it directly affects me. And when black boys are getting shot and killed by the police, that doesn't affect me, so I don't need to know. So that changed everything. We had some big, big, big town hall meetings at our church. Um, there oh, wow. were arguing and discussing. There were Facebook fights. There were, like, it was messy and dirty and really good um, because it and, and changed let me, me. Let me make an observation. So what I've heard you talk about is the Bible, then suffering that entered your life. And Richard Rohr talks about how we typically learn through great pain or great, uh, or through great suffering or great love. And typically those go together. Yes. And then it, there's proximity to the other. Yes. Um, and I say the other for those who are listening, referring to those who are not in our normal everyday life. Right. And those three things, um, I mean, I could go on and on about it, but there's there's a um, fellow named Jack Mesero who worked for Columbia University who talked about transformative learning. What transforms us is that we have an orientation to the world, then we have a disorienting experience. And in that disorientation, we are then reoriented to the world in a new way. Mm, right. um, and it, that, that's what I'm hearing, this pattern of orientation, disorientation, reorientation, uh, which I find really, really fascinating and compelling. Um, yes, it's going to continue. Doggone it, I have been disorientated, disoriented for too many times. Um, okay, so yes, that was... That was huge. So now, not only am I, oh, my eyes are open to people who are poor. And, oh, now my eyes are open to people who are not white. And um, that, so then we took another step in 2014. So when we lost our house and um, had to find low-income housing, as it turned out, our church had just rented an apartment in a low-income low housing apartment complex. And they were starting, well, actually, I was starting with the help of some friends, a tutoring program for Somali refugees. 
And in this apartment complex, and talk about like not <laughs> having any clue what's going on. The year before, we had started um, reaching out to the homeless, and I was realizing that there are homeless camps basically in my backyard. And mm -hmm. all the things that I had no clue. So we're meeting all these people, seeing where they live. And then we start this tutoring program. I walk around in this place the first time and <laughs> it really felt like I have never been to Somalia, but I felt like I was in Somalia. It was, mm. you go around the corner, you go in this place and everywhere you look, um, every child has brown skin. All the girls are wearing hijabs. Um, all the moms are sitting around talking. There are colorful things hanging from the balcony. And this is one mile from my house, the house that I just lost and cannot live in anymore. And I'm looking for a place to live. Well, long story short, we moved into an apartment just down from the tutoring apartment in December of 2013. And so now we live here. <laughs> we were... Um, there might have been one other family that had white children, but other than that, it was just our daughters. And then, and it wasn't just refugees from Somalia. There were refugees from Nepal, from Eritrea, from, uh, there was a lot of, um, people from Mexico. And so it was just this conglomeration of all of these people. And we fell in love I don't know how, like, I don't know how to say it in a non-patronizing way. With these, they just welcomed us, embraced us, had us over to their apartments, fed us, took care of us, and it stripped away that whole white savior thing that I think we tried not to feel when we went to Cambodia, but it was still there. Stripped yeah. that away because we were in the only place that we could afford to live. We mm. had very little income. I had a husband who was suffering from panic attacks and couldn't leave the house. Um, there was just a lot. I mean, we got bud bugs, <laughs> which was fun. Um, there was, it was very, very humbling. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. Um, our girls made the best friends. They still talk about these friends. So we lived there for a year um, and they still talk about it all these years later since we've been in Cambodia. But what happened there was that, so this is adding another, another level to this, is now Muslims. Now, what am I going to do about these friends who don't believe the way I believe? Am I going to spend all mm. my time trying to convert them? Am I going to be friends with them? Am I going to find a different way to look at how you get to heaven and hell? Am I going to see the kind way that they bend over backwards and bring sambusa and shah tea to my house and and think, well, sorry about your luck, but you're going to be going to hell. Um, so that was another, <laughs> that was a whole another thing that was added to now what do I do? Uh, so in the meantime, Gabe tells us as a family that he feels like um, oh, I forgot to mention this part. About every six months, uh, Gabe would hear from God again. He cannot leave the house. He is scared to death. He is going to the emergency room. He has suicidal thoughts. And one day he took a walk around the block, which is the hugest thing for him. He 
I think he left his heart rate monitor at the house and was going to try to go around the block without it. And he comes back and something's really wrong. So this is in 2000. This is still in 2012. And he says to me when he gets back, well, I asked him what was wrong. He said nothing. He wouldn't tell me the whole day. Finally, at the end of the day, <laughs> he said, okay, I know I have to tell you this, but I really don't want to tell you. I said, just tell me. And he said, while I was walking, I heard God say, I healed you for Cambodia. Now, he wow. did not want to go to Cambodia, and he wasn't healed. So that didn't make any sense. Six months later, God told him the same thing, like in his bed. Six months later, told him the same thing. So we are at Abbey Lane. This is the apartment complex. And we, God tells Gabe again, and he says, I am ready to take a trip back to Cambodia. Not move there, but I'll take a trip. So we start saving money, saving money. We don't have any money. So we have just a few hundred dollars that we're trying to save. And our 11-year-old, I think she was 11, wrote us an email. We had an 800-square-foot apartment. So she's writing this email probably 10 feet away from us. <laughs> and she says in this email, remember when we were in Cambodia and God told you that we were supposed to move there? And now you said we can go back, but we have to save up all of this money for plane tickets. It's the same amount of money to go there for a trip as it is to move there. So why would we spend all that money just to go for a little bit and come back when God told us we were supposed to go? <laughs> and I go in, I talk to Gabe. I said, what do we say to the child? And he's like, okay, let's go. He said, I would rather die in Cambodia doing what God told me to do than die on this bed. Wow. And so, but here's the little glitch. Now, I don't want to leave Abbey Lane. After three years of crying about not being in Cambodia, I've fallen in love with Somalia and Eritrea and Nepal. And how are we going to abandon these new friends? So we are at a prayer meeting with some other friends. And I am crying and saying all this. And my friend, who I met um, at this church that we started, she says to me, Marla, God just gave me a word for you. And she tells me about Acts 28, where Paul is heading. Now I forget where he's heading. Um, but he gets shipwrecked and he lands on Malta. And he's there for three months. And he heals people. People take care of him. He makes friends. They feed him. They take care of him. And then he says, well, this was great. And I'm really thankful. But my boat is ready. And this was not my destination. This was just a stop. And now I have to go. And it, it changed, it changed it all for me because I mm. had been sick to my stomach every day for about a month about how can we, how can we leave these people, our friends and move to Cambodia? And we don't know what yeah. we're going to do in Cambodia. Why would we do this? This is, it doesn't make any sense. So I felt like Della's Thing that she told me about Paul was this release that it's okay to go. Mm. Um, and so we did, we sold everything. We gave, um, we gave a lot of stuff away to our neighbors, which was great because people had given this stuff to us anyway, and we gave it to them. And so many of our neighbors would invite us over and they had no furniture. They might have five, six, seven kids, no couches, no beds, um, just bare 
bare walls and floors. Um, so we got to share with them a lot of things. We got to introduce so many people to them. So we kind of felt like we were leaving them in good hands because we had connected other people who could be there for them. And we got on the plane, oh, uh, two weeks, two or three weeks before we moved, um, we paid off the last penny of our debt, which was wow. a miracle because we had been married for 17 years and had been in debt that whole entire time <laughs> before the heart attack, after the college bills, all of that. Um, we did it with a lot of help and we did it with some, what I would call miracles. We did it with calling up the the bill collectors and saying, can you give us a deal? And they'd be like, oh, that's been taken care of. We don't know how. Um, so we moved to Cambodia. Um, and that's where we are now. So Unreal. Do you have anything to ask me about that? Or you want me to just keep talking? I feel like I've been talking for a really long time. <laughs> no, but that's what I, I literally want people to hear your story, which is yeah. what you're doing. So here would be a question. So you, you've you've alluded to this phase shift to this evolution growth. What would be one um, one conversation, one issue, one conviction, however you want to say it, in which you would say, yeah, I've definitely grown or evolved or shifted here. And I'm wondering like, what steps or whether they be conscious or unconscious did you take in that process? And, and maybe this is what you're reflecting on now as you talked about starting to write some of these things down to help people or help yourself even uh, understand what that process looked like for you. Right. What I will, the one thing I always tell people is books. I have read I don't know how many books in my lifetime. I love books. Books are my thing. We haven't even gotten to the bamboo libraries here in Cambodia or the Bookstagram account that I do. Um, but I ask anybody who's ever met me and they will tell you that I am, I, I just read, 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 read. So in 2012, backing up to that, I, back when I was blogging a lot and had a big community going there, I decided to start doing some read-alongs. And the read-along I chose in, in summer of 2012 was a book called Evolving in Monkey Town by Rachel Held Evans. Oh, and yes. it, um, I think if I recall correctly, and again, I journal also daily. So I have about 100 journals. So when I do write this all down, I will have the facts right in front of me. I will be able to know <laughs> <laughs> when I changed my mind about this and how I felt about that. And But I think I picked up the book originally, initially, and decided, oh, whoa, I don't know that I'm ready for this. Rachel was very much like me. We had a very similar background. And then she started asking questions. And she wanted to know things, wanted to know, like, why is this woman in this Muslim country going to be executed and then end up in hell? Or why did, why are all the Jews that were killed by the Nazis in the Holocaust, are they, did they go from the gas chamber straight to hell? And all of these things, then she talked to someone who was gay, um, who was wonderful, is this person going to hell? It had a lot to do, and then she would talk about some people that were supposedly on their way to heaven who just weren't very nice. <laughs> and I think yes. that kind of struck a nerve there with me. And I had already started reading these verses about the poor and then reading other verses more carefully. It was just like a, um, 
well, I'm losing my words here. I, I'm learning another language, so I lose my English words. <laughs> but oh, awesome. I, um, it's just like I was searching through the through the Bible to find like hidden nuggets that I that were like tucked under other verses that I'd always remembered to find all the ones that talked about the things that nobody ever talked about, <laughs> like all the yes. verses about the poor and all the uh, and all the verses about hell and does it really mean this and all these things. So all of this is coming together at once. And I think it was Rachel. I know it was Rachel that gave me permission to ask questions because from what I knew, um, questions were not a good thing. That meant that my faith was weak. If I was questioning my faith and it wasn't strong and it wasn't going to be to hold up. And I really couldn't let other people know that I wasn't sure how I felt about something. Because if I was going to convince them of the right way, then I needed to be really sure of it, not asking questions. Is this right? Is that not? So I did this on my, on my blog, and it, it changed my life. And it changed a lot of other people's lives, too. I was looking back at the comments just a, um, a few weeks ago after Rachel died and was remembering all of the things that people had said and people that I've lost touch with and wanting to get back in mm. touch with some of the people who were clearly already ahead of me <laughs> on my journey back then. I probably at the time thought, oh, wow, I don't know that I'll ever get to where she's at. Um, but I had probably been warned about the slippery slope about 3,500 times um, recently, <laughs> maybe like 12 times yesterday. But um, what I found is that the slippery slope my sister-in-law, who's brilliant, will tell me that it's an illogical fallacy. I am not as smart as her, so I think that it's true because it, it, it was a slippery slope. If you start to care about the poor people, then you might care about people with darker skin than yours. Then you might care about your Muslim friends, and then you might care about gay people, and then you might care. But what I didn't realize was the slippery slope is actually... A slippery slope to freedom. It's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not a bad thing. So I feel like these authors of these books, so Rachel and I, actually brought a stack of them out here in my living room. Um, so Peter and Sarah Bessie, Jen Hatmaker, Lisa Harper, Rob Bell, all of these people that I started reading, and they were all saying things that just really, really, really resonated with me, and. Um, I don't even know how much more time we have, but we, um, as I was going through this, um, it's, it's been, it's been hard to, to, well, for example, out of all the people who have called me a heretic or unfriended me <laughs> or disowned me, there is only one person who I care about. <laughs> and there've been a lot, there've been a lot of people um, and only one who I care about. The problem is that this person is someone I care about very deeply, like someone on the short list of people I would die for. Um, mm. And so this, just this past summer, well, in the spring, um, as I'm getting bolder and writing more things online on Facebook and Twitter and mostly Facebook, I, I joke around that when people say, where can I find you? I'm like, well, which me do you want to find? <laughs> yeah. Because there's Facebook me, there's white girl learning on Instagram me, there's Twitter me, but all different people. Um, Cause I know my audience is a lot different on each of those. Um, but this particular um, 
person who's really close to me, they, um, I, I got an email from them as a couple, and well, first a 12-page, 12-page uh, document documenting all of my heresies on Facebook from the previous however many years. Oh, wow. So they with, gave this some time. Yeah, with corresponding Bible verses, why I was a heretic, what was wrong with what I was saying. And it was not super kind, um, and it was hurtful. And then when I did not respond to it, because I, I didn't know how to respond, and I knew that just fighting, I could fight Bible verses with Bible verses. I mean, you have a Bible verse for yours. I have one that fits mine. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I can do that. And I know yep. my Bible. So I could do that. Um, I just didn't. That's not what I wanted to do. The, I I am not in this to, to be right. That was the old me who wanted to be right. Now I, that's not even, that's not my goal. My goal with all of this is to love God and love my neighbor as myself. And anything I'm changing my mind on, it has to be because of that. I don't even yes. care about anything that doesn't affect my neighbor. If it doesn't affect my neighbor, do whatever you want with it. Like it doesn't, the problem now is everybody is my neighbor. I am at the end of who I can not call a neighbor anymore because I feel like now that I've been in proximity to pretty much everyone that that people would not want to call their neighbor. So this this person, I wrote this verse down. They told me when I didn't respond, uh, they quoted Romans 16, 17, watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching heresy, stay away from them. And because of that, they said they could not see me and my family last summer when we mm. visited. So we visited the States mm. in 2016, 2018. If we can raise enough money, we'll do it in 2020. Um, but we did not get to see them or their whole entire family. Um, so that has been one of the most painful things that has ever yeah. happened to me. And in the meantime, I mean, what I've got to do, and just recently I was finding that I was getting so worked up about not only people I knew who were calling me a heretic, but people I didn't even know or care about who <laughs> came out of nowhere. I have 4,000 Facebook friends and don't know who half of them are. And I realized I can't do this anymore. I have got to focus on the people who love me and the people I love. And yes. so yes, yes. two people in particular, my sister Stephanie and my sister-in-law Jessica, I emailed both of them and said, listen, I let's start back up our emails. Let's FaceTime more. I want to, I want to focus on our relationship. I told some other friends that um, I just... I, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. And so my focus is on marginalized groups of people. If you want to stick around and argue with me, you can. I may or may not say anything back. But if you say anything to them, if you say something hurtful to my Muslim friend, you are gone. If you say something hurtful to my friend who had an abortion, you are gone. If you, That's kind of my rule. And sometimes if you say something I don't like... <laughs> You might also be gone. <laughs> but funny yeah. story about you messaging me and asking me to be on the podcast is that I had just unfriended someone from our school. And 
I thought maybe <laughs> somehow you were coming to reprimand me for that. I was like, is Michael Hidalgo coming out of nowhere? <laughs> Just, yeah. No, you're like, hey, so you want to be on my podcast? It's about changing faith. Well, sure. Sure, Michael. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be great. Well, and I think the... The response to the critics is important. We, I, I just uh, posted something, I don't know, a week or two ago, where I got a really, um, it was kind of like a veiled threat, I'll say it that way, hmm. in the mail at our church building. And I talked about how so often, and this is what you're pointing to as well, is we can give so much headspace, heart space, airtime to people who want to criticize and that polarizing, angry rhetoric does seem to draw a crowd. Yeah. But it's not ultimately good for the human soul. No. And I think if we can, like what you're doing, saying, no, I'm about this, yeah. and this is what I'm going to give my time and my energy and my life to, um, for those who are listening, that's a more helpful question. What are you giving your life to? Right. What are you pursuing? What are you about? Because if you can name those things, then you can more easily look at the criticism maybe there's a kernel of truth in it. Yeah. I always try to find something in it. Sometimes yeah. I just, if there's, if it's, there's no name attached, I toss it. Right. Um, but in that way, I think that continues to propel growth forward and you, you begin to find yourself having more joy and more peace and yeah. that joy and peace and grace. It's like a resistance to the cynicism yes. that so often exists in our world. Yes. And one of the places that I have found that is giving me life right now is on Instagram. I started in December of 2017 an account called White Girl Learning. And it's just what it sounds like. <laughs> it is me, a white girl, learning about all of the things that I, well, it's actually, it should be called, well, it should be called White Girl Unlearning and then White Girl Learning, but that was too long. So it is. <laughs> It is all about me reading everything I can get my hands on from authors who are black, indigenous, people of color, and sharing what I've learned and supporting them. Oh, that's awesome. Supporting them on Patreon when I can and sharing their sites. And so it it has been this place of life because it's it's not me. I mean, most people don't know that who well if you know who I am and you know that's me but I don't really talk about my name or whatever there but I it's a place you're only going to come and follow if you care so it's kind of like I've yeah. weeded out <laughs> it's my spot where I've weeded out the people who want to argue about racism or say they're not racist or say that white privilege isn't real and these are people who genuinely honestly care and so they yeah. I will get messages every day from people um, what can, what can I have my kids read so that they can have a broader perspective of the world? How can I this? What can I do this? What do you think oh, about that's this? that's awesome. And then I can connect them and point them to people who know. And I cannot get enough. So I'm reading a such a, a so the person the people who disowned me um, say that I shouldn't read any books at all except for the Bible. And then they read some books, but it's, I guess there are special books approved by the Bible that you can read, like certain yeah. books by certain authors or Paul approved or whatever. Um, but I, it, it's funny when they think that I, um, <laughs> that I've abandoned the Bible when I affirm gay marriage or when I think that my Muslim friends could still go to heaven, um, Anything I say that that is that sounds heretical or might be heretical, I don't really know. 
um, they think that I have just abandoned the Bible. I had one person, and especially this person that disowned me, kept saying, you need to get in the Word. I'm going to pray that you get in the Word, get in the Word. And it's, it's kind of insulting because not only was I in the Word, I was reading the Word in Khmer, which is the Cambodian language. We learned how to read and write. And this script is like Japanese and Chinese and Korean. This is not A, B, C, D, E. This is you can look it up and see what it looks like. This is oh, a wow. challenge. So my Kamai tutor and I, she's 16, we read the entire New Testament out loud. I read it in Kamai, and she read it in English. So I would read a verse, oh, she would goodness. read a verse. I would read a verse, she would read a verse. That right there opened up my eyes to some stuff because I never learned Greek and Hebrew, um, but I did learn Kamai. So one example that I give to people when they, when they ask me about it is, the word for circumcision in the Kamai Bible is two words, cut skin. And that's it. And in this culture, there is no circumcision. So there is no way for a Kamai to pick up a Bible, read about circumcision, and have any clue what is going on. So here's me having to explain to my 16-year-old Kamai teacher <laughs> what circumcision is. And I was like, please let me do this in English. I do not even know the words in Kamai for, <laughs> for this process. Um, but that kind of thing where I'm, I'm just not reading the old dead white guy's perspective anymore. I'm reading black liberation theology and womanist theology, and I'm reading all of... I'm reading about the Bible from the Jewish perspective and like the parables of Jesus as a Jewish woman and scholar would interpret them in all the many different ways that it can be interpreted. And so, so much that I have to unlearn just last night, my daughter, my youngest daughter, um, teaches herself things. So when we went to school to learn Kamai, she taught herself how to read first before we ever learned it. And now she's learning oh Greek goodness. on her own. And as you do. Yeah, as you do. But when my first year of teaching, um, I taught a theme unit on ancient Greece and I looked up the Greek alphabet and how you would say it. And I taught my kids a song and it's the alphabet song. So like alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and it goes all the way through. Well, I taught that to my girls when they were little. And now that my 13-year-old knows Greek, she's like, hey, mom, um, that's not how you say any of the Greek letters. <laughs> and so last night in our bedroom, she is trying to reteach me how to say them. So instead of <laughs> alpha, beta, gamma, delta, it's alpha, vita, gamma, delta. Like, and so she's trying to teach me how to sing these. And she said to me, it would have been easier if you never learned it the wrong way. And I was like, oh, oh nice. crap. There it is. <laughs> and that's how yes. I feel. That's how I feel being someone who has always loved to learn and read and was really pretty smart that the unlearning is um, it's a doozy. But yeah. it goes hand in hand. I don't have to unlearn it all at once. I can unlearn it as I learn it. Uh, we unschool our children here, which is another whole thing. So we are unlearning, unschooling, and we have not gone to church in two years, which is another podcast. Um, so we are unchurching. <laughs> yeah. um, and I didn't even get into Cambodia and what we what we do here. 
Um, but I will just say that we, I want to write a book about this too. I have like 17 book ideas that we came as colonizers and we are leaving. Well, we're not leaving. Um, so it won't became as colonizers left as something else. It'll be, we came as colonizers. Um, I feel like we, we no longer call ourselves missionaries. At least I don't. Mm. Um, we have a whole new perspective on that of, of white Americans coming in and bringing white American Jesus with them. And um, yeah. we don't want to do that. But something cool is I can show you because you can see me on video. This just came today. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible in the Cambodian language. Um, oh, nice. So we are like the last ones on the planet to get the Jesus Storybook Bible in, in our language. Um, but we have a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of copies that we are going to take. We've given away some to our neighbors already. We're going to take some to the bamboo libraries. Um, but that's another thing. We don't, we don't preach the gospel in our bamboo libraries. It is, um, there are a lot of believers already in the villages out there and they do their thing. We have books about Jesus and Bibles in the library, but we also have a lot of other books there too. I get books from the States that have black and brown characters. So the kids can see that not all the princesses and superheroes have white skin. And yes. we, that's another thing that has gotten me in trouble with people because they don't understand why I would, we wouldn't share the gospel explicitly. And what I try to tell people is what if your kids went to story time at their library and the people who ran it were Muslim. And to go to story time, they had to sit and listen to a presentation on Muslim on Islam. Yep. And how would you feel about that? And that makes people either it's either a light bulb moment or they get furious with me. Like it's mm. they, it's not the same. It's not the same. Well, it is actually the same because what I'm telling people is. You can have access to our free books and our programs and our English classes if you convert to my religion. And what yeah. we've also found is when people raise their hand to follow Jesus, they're really raising their hand to get stickers or to get rice or to get whatever it is. They call them rice Christians here because they don't understand the whole thing about that. And I don't believe in that anymore anyway, where there's a specific prayer that you just raise your hand and say, and boom, you're in. And if you get the words wrong, you're out. Um, so, so yeah, there's a lot, 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 lot more that I could say about all of these things. The cool thing is it all, it all comes together. Like it's all, I was thinking of that Mr. Rogers song. I don't know if you ever watched Mr. Rogers when you were growing up, but he's like, everything grows together because it's all one piece. And he's like, your arms grow as your yeah. legs grow. And I, I feel like all of the different directions that I'm kind of being pulled really all go together. And the bottom line mm. is love my neighbor as myself. So even there's even a piece in there of loving myself, which I have not been super great at. Um, so I'm yeah. trying to get good at that. And it's, I would not trade any of it. I guess I'm going to have to say even the parts that were really hard because it just makes the other parts better. I mean, the financial struggles we had in the States prepared us to not have any money in Cambodia. I mean, things that yeah. were hard then, well, at least, oh, I forgot to tell you that Gabe's anxiety went away. God healed him. Like just boom. Oh, wow. And since we moved to Cambodia, he might have had two tiny, small panic attacks at first, but 
we're talking four and a half years of health where he goes out on his wow. moto, his motorcycle. We all drive motos here, which is fun. Um, he goes out on his moto hours by himself out in the wilderness, nobody out there and is not scared. This is a guy who could not be five minutes from a hospital at any point. And now he's also wow. been in like five moto wrecks. <laughs> so he's, he's been in people's hammocks and on their wooden whatever while old ladies pour bottled water on him and put tiger balm on his injuries. And, um, that's amazing. So hard. It, it's hard. It's hard now. It'll be hard tomorrow. And it is also really, 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 really good. So oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, Hey, first, thank you so much for sharing the story, you're your welcome. story. Uh, and, and you mentioned you're on different places, uh, online. So where can our listeners find you? Um, Instagram, I'm Marla Taviano. That's my main account where I post stuff from Cambodia, bamboo libraries. We have five libraries out in the villages. Um, and just stuff that we're doing here. White girl learning on Instagram is where I post all the books by black indigenous people of color. I'm Marla Taviano on Twitter. Um, I mostly hang out there and listen a lot, so I'll retweet a lot of people's things and occasionally say some things that I think. Um, I'm on Facebook. Facebook, I don't, I mostly go there, post articles that I think will get people thinking and then walk away. <laughs> no, and sometimes I will, <laughs> I will engage and, and talk. There's a lot of people on there that I want to stay connected with just because we live so far away and I don't want to lose that yeah. connection with them. Yeah. And then I used to blog at marlataviano.com, but I have not done that in quite a while. But on that site is a list of my books. So after I got the four books published uh, by traditional publishers, I went on, and that's the sad story I didn't tell you, and I'm glad, but they went on to then uh, self-publish ebooks. So there are ebooks you can, I've written ebooks about unschooling, ebooks about Gabe's anxiety after his heart attack an ebook about our time living in the refugee community. Um, I wrote an ebook called What Makes You Fart, which is um, <laughs> based on the premise that when you are at your, at your most relaxed and in your element, then your body loosens up and you fart. So if you can't find your passion, you just find out where you are when you fart. Like maybe for you, it's in that closet because you love to podcast. I don't <laughs> and your son comes back and he's like, Dad, the closet stinks. Um, yeah, exactly. And my next project is I am writing a book about dangerous books. So books that will lead you down a slippery slope. It's going to be gently satirical and it will kind of, it's going to be kind of the gateway book into my real big book about my whole journey. So I will talk about all the books that, um, that changed my mind and changed my heart and went along with my, oh, awesome. my life experience. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Hey friend, thank you so much for being with us, sharing your story. Um, and I feel like th th there's so much more that we could cultivate. So I do really encourage those of you listening, um, to pursue Marla, both on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, on both of those accounts and on her podcast or on her website. Sorry. So Marla, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks, Michael. And thank you all again for joining with us for another episode of the Changing Faith podcast. And my hope is that we will continue to ask questions 
to open ourselves to new experiences, to open ourselves to the other, and to be willing to consider and reconsider what next steps might look like for us. So that is it for today. And once again, thank you for joining with us. And until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.